You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So we're in the midst of this series, and today's question, um, is this one that you've heard? Why does the church talk so much about sin? Anybody ever hear that one? I mean, it's so depressing. It's such a downer. Really? I don't really want to always hear about all the bad stuff. Um, and so that's one of those questions I think that we're asking. And so the concept of sin is offensive to some and a puzzle to others. Conventional wisdom says that the talk of that sin stuff that the church does so much of is pessimistic and depressing. And I would dare say, though, that's the opposite of the reality. The Christian teaching of sin, when it is fully understood, is both liberating and hopeful. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Why talking about this this way is better than a lot of the other language we've got to talk about the problems that are in this world. I mean, it's not too hard. You can't hardly spend an hour in this world not to know that there are some big problems, right? It's impossible, and you will, it doesn't take long before you, there is an appeal to do something about the problems. There's one form or another, and everybody's looking at it in a different angle, but they're all seeing that this world is broken, and there's a lot of problems in it. So nobody really disagrees with that. But what is this, the lens that we look through that we call it sin, okay? Well, what this means is that you are not fatalistically determined to be the way that you are the rest of your life, because sin means there is also a solution, and we'll talk about that. It means that you are not the helpless victim of uh, psychological processes and drives that make you the way that you are. You are not just part of a social system that has conformed you, and you have to be that way. You are not just a genetic predisposition, but there is a solution. And when we talk in the Christian church or Christians talk about sin, they are saying, yes, there is a problem, but there is a solution. Barbara Brown Taylor put it well when she talked about it this way, neither the language of medicine nor of law is adequate substitute for the language of sin. Contrary to the medical model, we are not entirely at the mercy of our maladies. The choice is to enter into the process of repentance. Contrary to the legal model, the essence of sin is not primarily the violation of laws, but a wrecked relationship with God, one another, and the whole created order. Do you get it? A lot of people talk about problems, but they often then basically say, there's really no, you're stuck. And in sin, when we're talking about it, we're saying there is also a solution. And that is both liberating and hopeful to me. Now, right away you might say, John, well, that's great, but you know, I really, you know, I've made my mistakes, I've messed up, but really, do we have to talk about it some more? Can't we just move on and get on with life and get beyond that? Because it's a lot easier to just, you know, I might sin, but really call me a sinner? That's kind of a little much. 
And now I think then we're getting at the real root of the problem. Because you see, sin is not about, oh, I did that little mistake here, and I thought that thought there, and I forgot to do this here. It's not these little things, and a lot of people look at it as if it's rule-keeping and rule-breaking, and that's what life is about. That is not what we talk about. No, the real definition of what sin is is this. It is the stubborn refusal to find your identity in God. Or another way of saying it, it's the obstinate insistent to find your identity in something else than God. I'm going to. No, 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 no. And we see that in this story. Because what's really going on, it's not about the fruit from the tree. It's not about the tree itself. It's the fact that Adam and Eve, whether they were deceived or not by Satan, they can't blame the serpent for it all, but they chose to find an identity apart from God. That was their issue. They were basically, I'm sorry, the kids are gone, but they were giving their finger, flipping it off to God. And saying, God, we don't want you. We want your stuff. We want to be like you. Now, isn't that kind of ironic in that passage? The serpent says, oh, God knows if you eat from this tree, you're going to be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. And what he's really getting at is redefining who God is and what God is all about. And the fact that God is holding back and you need to get your identity yourself. And he also changes the definition of what it means to be like God. Did you realize that Adam and Eve were created in God's image, it says? Were they not already like God? They reflected his goodness they were in relationship with them, uh, each other with, and with God. They already were like God. But what they were doing, and this is what the serpent was so wily about, is he was changing the definition of God being one of love and connection and service to a definition of God being one of power and possession. You can be like God in this way. You can possess yourself, make your own identity, you gain your own power, and you get to choose the way you want to live. And so, we don't want you, God. We want your stuff. We want your omniscience. We want to be able to know everything and figure it out ourselves. We don't want you, God, but we want your omnipresence to an extent. We want to be able to be wherever we want to be and do whatever we want to do. We don't want you, God, but we want your omnipotence. That is, we want to be able to get done whatever we want to get done and show how good we're at it. We're finding our identity in something other than God. That's the big lie. And when we fell for it, boy, it's caused a lot of problems ever since. It's not about this thing or that thing or that rule or that idea. It's about just our stubborn insistence to do it our way. You see, everybody gets their identity from something or someone. Somehow, you find your value in something or someone in somewhere. And the question is where? In our culture, in our day and age, it's not that we find it in as much in family anymore as it is in our occupation. You ask somebody who they are and they will say, I'm a doctor, right? Really? Is that who you are? Take away being a doctor, are you still there? But we tend to find our identity in what we do, our achievements, or in our status, where we live, what we drive, 
you know, what gadgets we have on our bodies and what we are able to do. We find it in, maybe in our popularity and how many likes we have on Facebook or how many followers on Instagram or Twitter. We find our identity in something or someone and we're using it all the time to make ourselves feel good because in essence, we are still insecure. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Did you notice that in the garden? The first thing that happens after they grabbed it for themselves is they looked at themselves and they realized, I'm vulnerable. I'm naked. I can't be seen this way. I don't want anybody to... And they try to cover themselves up with fig leaves. Not real effective, by the way. You don't see too many fig leaf clothing lines around these days, do you? <laughs> and there's a reason. It didn't last. And almost every attempt that we have had since that time to the present is just another version of fig leaves. Might work for a little time, but doesn't work for long. And it just doesn't last. Simon Wheel, Simone Wheel, um, she said it well. She said, all sins things that we do are really attempts to fill voids, okay? So everyone finds their value in something, and in the Garden of Eden, they were trying to fill now this God-sized void after they said, no thanks, we don't want you, God, we want your stuff. And then ever since, we've been trying to fill the void of that broken relationship with God, and whatever we try to fill ourselves with just doesn't quite fill it. It cannot fill it. But attempt after attempt after attempt for the rest of our lives, we keep trying to do it. And finding our identity in something other than God is extremely unstable. Doesn't take much, and all of a sudden we just fall apart. Timothy Keller writes about this in the book, The Reason for God. We've got a few extra copies of it yet. And in this chapter, he says this, If anything threatens your identity, you will not just be anxious, but paralyzed with fear. If you lose your identity through the failings of someone else, you will not just be resentful, but locked into bitterness. If you lose it through your own failings, you will hate or despise yourself as a failure as long as you live. Only if your identity is built on God and his love can you have a self that can venture anything, face anything. There is no way to avoid this insecurity outside of God. And so Adam and Eve, insecure from the beginning, start trying to find and justify themselves and figure it out one way or another. And so they find it by making somebody else look worse. You know, the woman you gave me, she's the cause. Oh, the serpent did it. Actually, it's you, God. That's the problem. They try to find it by covering themselves up. They try by avoiding and hiding. They tr we try by what we do, whatever it is, but we find out that anything that we attempt to do just is another cover-up. And we, instead of you seeing people, serving people, seeing them, we start using people to fill our need for a solid identity and our status and our children and our place in this world and our money and our and so all of these things start taking on as Simone Weil would say they start taking on almost a t tinge of a divinity she says this one has only the choice 
between God and idolatry. If one denies God, one is worshiping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such, but in fact, though known to oneself imagining, well, basically the fact that we start looking at this person, we almost give them divine, like you're going to do it for me. You become the ultimate, and they never are. People or things or stuff just can't fill the God-sized hole in us. So in the Garden of Eden here, we see how sin separates. It divides. It alienates. And uh, everything starts to break down. You see, when God created the world in the first couple chapters of Genesis, um, it says again and again how good it was, how wonderful it was. It was useful. It was beneficial. It was great. And the Hebrew understanding of all this in the Old Testament again and again is this Hebrew word called shalom. And shalom, in Arabic, it's salam. But it doesn't really translate well into English except as shalom, because the word peace that we use, we always say, oh, just be at peace with each other, means basically that we're not fighting. So my kids, stop fighting in the backseat of the car, you know, when they were smaller. Be at peace. Chill out. We've got three more hours to get there. But they're really not at peace. They just stop fighting. Underneath, they're thinking those thoughts, right? You know how that is. The word shalom means wholeness, completeness. It's the way that God set everything up to be so that every part of creation was interconnected in such a way so that it blessed every other part of creation. That everything was in harmony, in symphony, differentiated, different, but together harmonious, making a symphony of love and praise and joy. And that is what broke. And that's what got shattered. That's why we say at Thrive, what we're about is wanting people to thrive, to have that, in a sense, shalom, a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ and with others. And that is what community, Christian community, is really about. But here in Genesis 4, we can see right away, or Genesis 3, we can see four ways that sin, when it comes in, breaks things up. First of all, our relationship with God, and you see Adam and Eve hiding from God. Then our relationship with ourselves as well, where Adam and Eve are ashamed of themselves. Then our relationship with others, you, you know, you caused this, blaming each other and mistrusting one another. And finally, the relationship with creation. And after this text, we see how the work that Adam is doing and the work that Eve is doing is all getting frustrated and it's becoming laborious and difficult and it's not working out anymore. All of these are what, now do you understand why when we talk about sin, why we talk about it? Because it's at the root cause of every issue that happens in this world that we see a problem in, okay? But there's a solution. There's a solution, okay? We think we're becoming God-like when we try to make our own choices, and we are nothing like God when we've done it. And what's great, and praise God, God is so not like us in how he responded. 
in Genesis 3, we see right away how God responds to Adam and Eve. He comes and he walks in the garden in the cool of the day and he asks the question, where are you? And with that question, I believe, we learn so much about God and about ourselves. Where are you? You see, God doesn't want just to pass on some information. He's not into gadgets and gizmos or technology. He's not even into work orders. He doesn't give a to-do list to Adam. He doesn't, do the, he doesn't just scrap the whole thing and say, you blew it. He wants a relationship. Where are you? Just think about that. Did God know where they were? Yeah, I think so. He's God. I don't think Adam and Eve knew where they were. They didn't realize that they were lost and they needed to be found. You see in this little phrase, where are you, we see that God reaches out, he searches, he seeks, he redeems, he wants to restore. He is so biased in our favor that he comes after us. He takes responsibility for his creation. We find out as well in all of this that God not just tries to patch things up temporarily, but holistically. And later on in the book of Genesis chapter 3, just a little after this, we see that God makes for Adam and Eve and accommodates to their kind of being ashamed of themselves at this point in time and, not feeling, and feeling so insecure, he makes for themselves clothes out of animal skin, it says. And right away we see that God is going to try to take care of us and care for us. And do you realize in order to make clothes out of animal skins, God had to pour out some blood and let a life die to cover us. Already in Genesis chapter 3, the solution's going to mean blood is shed and a life is given. And he doesn't write us off. He doesn't start creation over. He sticks with us. He sticks with us and he says that someday down the line in Genesis 3, 15, that a seed of the woman, that is a offspring of this woman Eve, somewhere is going to remedy the situation by bruising the head of the serpent. But in the meantime, as this offspring bruises the head of the serpent, that serpent will strike his heel and he will face the poison and the death himself. That promised deliverance all the way back at the beginning, we see, is exactly what God does in Jesus Christ. Jesus takes it on. He takes responsibility. He pours out his blood. He puts sin to death by dying himself for us. So the Bible is not a story of rules and regulations. It's not a dictionary where you just find out what you did wrong. It's not this list of 1,258 commandments, and you better keep as many as you can. It's not 
where Jesus says, if you do these things, then you're good. It's really the story of God's unrelenting love and compassion for you and me and how he relentlessly pursues us to reconcile, to redeem, to repair all the broken relationships that we've ever caused, especially with him. Molly Hemingway, a religious news writer, has written, I think, in the New York Times and elsewhere, and she puts it this way. I kind of like how she says it. She says, I've always had this suspicion that the mainstream media thinks Christianity is basically a set of rules mostly about sex that are imperfectly followed by hypocrites such as Haggard and Swaggart. Some of you might not even know who they were, okay? Um, but, uh, you know, televangelists who then preached one thing and then did another. And in the media's defense, I think this view could be based in part on what some of the more media-friendly Christian figures teach. There have been a lot of people that talk about sin in those ways, and that's all they focus on, kind of like church lady, Dana Carvey's character. But what if the central teaching of Christianity is forgiveness? To say that Christianity isn't always the answer because some prominent Christian mega-telepreacher have sinned sexually in violation of their church's teaching denies the view that Christianity is a great answer for sinners such as myself who are in desperate need of forgiveness. I think she nailed it. That's why we say that Christian teaching of sin, when it is fully understood, is both liberating and hopeful because there is a remedy, there is forgiveness, there is a way out, there is a way to be transformed, to be changed. It is the way through repentance and of letting go. And God's plan was not ever a plan B, oops, they messed up. His plan has always been to have us thrive in relationships with him and to do so by pouring out himself in whatever way to do it and in the person and work of Jesus, he did it. So that's why also I think Jesus didn't ever say, hey, just recite this prayer, believe these facts, follow this protocol, you'll be fine. He doesn't say, um, just get this information down, memorize this Bible verse and you're good with God. This is how Jesus puts it when he talks about if you want to say sin or whatever. He says, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. In other words, if you try to find your identity in whatever and try to do it yourself, you're going to lose. But if you lose your life for my sake, for the kingdom's sake, for the gospel, then you'll save it. It is a time of letting go. Whether it's for people who have believed uh, for a long time, or people who are coming to believe in God for the first time, it's always a question for me every day of letting go, of not being in control of my identity, of having it my way, of saying to God, your will be done, not my own. It's a time of dying to myself and the way I want things and to find my whole identity in Jesus Christ. That's why Romans chapter um, 13, Paul is saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, basically, God wants to clothe us with the identity that was 
the most precious you could ever have, Jesus, his blood, much better than animal skins, will last forever. It's the one place that if you have your identity in Jesus Christ, you have total stability and you can face anything because of Jesus. Another way of saying it, I think, is um, the passage that Phil used earlier in the service in our confession. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, from now on, we're not going to look at people the way everybody else does. You see, Christians don't look at people and say, oh, no, when we, we expect the world to be messed up, and we expect people to have mixed motives. That doesn't mean we don't serve them. We serve them even more. We give, and we don't expect if somebody has done something terribly wrong, we don't devalue them or think less of them. We realize how much God has loved them. So we don't look at people the way the world may look at people. We see people through Jesus so that even though we once regarded even Jesus in the wrong way, we now regard him no longer that way, he says. But therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the hope. That's the liberation. That's the freedom that we have so that anybody I see, if I see them, I want to see them and say, hey, he can be, she can be in Christ. And they can be a new creation. The old passes away, the new has come. So the teaching of sin, it might seem counterintuitive to say, but I believe when it's fully understood, it is liberating and hopeful. Everyone can be that new creation. Today's the day for that. For all of us. Once again, to let go. And to say, hey, it's not my achievements, it's not my status, it's not my popularity, it's not my morality, it's not my abilities, it's not my willfulness, it's Jesus. It's all Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace we realize we've been stubborn. We've tried to define ourselves and our value through, well, something other than you, whether it's what we can do, what we think, what we have. It hasn't worked. It just won't work. Lord, and you see how insecure we've been, how touchy on those subjects, how much we're still seeking something to fill our God-sized hole Lord, only you can fill it, and you have. Holy Spirit, come now to bear that truth into our lives so that we receive you and are clothed with you once again, Lord Jesus, so that we receive our identity in you, our destiny from you, our very life now lived for you. And for all of us who are in Christ, Lord, you say it, we are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Amen. If this is maybe the first time